0: latest on Jordan Cove, the LNG terminal that's being proposed for Cruise Bay. My engineer is Patsy Kohlberg. and Barbara Bernstein. We're going to go out with some music by Ricky Lee Jones. Thanks for listening.
1: Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO Portland, and the time now is 11 o'clock. Coming up on The Boo at 1130, Madness Radio explores voices and visions from outside mental health. All of these KBOO programs are made possible by members' support. If you'd like to become a member, please go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. And now stay tuned for Making Contact, which will look at Wealth, Inequity and the prospects of creating a universal basic income. Stay tuned.
2: KBU Camille Radio is proud to co-sponsor a screening of the film From Shock to Awe, A Journey of Hope and Transformation on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at Regal Cinema's Pioneer Place in Portland. The film hosts the path of two combat veterans from the Iraq War as they live with post-traumatic stress, the lack of effective treatment, and their search for healing. This is a crowdsourced event and tickets are currently available for purchase. There will be a brief Q&A following the film. Again, that's a screening of the film from Shock to Awe, A Journey of Hope and Transformation on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at Regal Cinema's Pioneer Place, 340 Southwest Morrison Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events.
3: This week on Making Contact.
1: I think it's a reflection of just how unequal a society we've become. Uh, And and, in times of inequality, lead to a polarized politics through history and right to now. And and it gives rise to both a a progressive populism, sort of a Bernie focus on billionaires rigging the rules, but it also gives rise to this regressive populism, which is the politics of scapegoating and blaming people.
4: So the question we're asking everyone is if you were given $1,500 every month from now for the rest of your life, unconditionally, so no strings attached by the government, as a universal basic income for you, how would your life be different? How would it be impacted?
5: Well, I mean, honestly, I probably wouldn't be working right now if I got a universal income, um, or at least working full time, that is. I could focus a little bit more on school and the things that really, I think, would be a little bit more grounding to me.
0: So initially the idea was that there's more and more interest within the tech community for basic income as a policy. And that's, you know, because there is an increased um, concern that current technological developments might lead to um, a very bleak future for jobs and that we should start worrying about what we are gonna do when robots are taking over.
3: We talked with Chuck Collins about wealth inequity under President Trump. And the producers of the upstream podcast ask. Are we ready for universal basic income? I'm your host, RJ Lozada. Stay tuned. It's now many moons after Donald Trump's inauguration as President of the United States. Here at Making Contact, we've been wondering how to tackle the topic of his presidency How might we explore all that his administration has executed? We decided against an impossible comprehensive report. So today, we take a small bite at just one key aspect of the Trump agenda, widening wealth inequity.
1: I think it's a reflection of just how unequal a society we've become. Uh, And and in times of inequality lead to a polarized politics through history and right to now. And it gives rise to both a a progressive populism, sort of a Bernie focus on billionaires rigging the rules, but it also gives rise to this regressive populism, which is the politics of scapegoating and blaming people.
3: That's Chuck Collins. He's been tackling inequality as an author and activist for decades. He co-founded the organization United for a Fair Economy, and he advocates for taxing inherited fortunes of the super-wealthy. We spoke to him just after Donald Trump was declared the winner of the presidential election.
1: I think it's actually good news that people are waking up and angry about the way the economy's been organized to funnel wealth to the 1%. But this is a good example of misdirected anger. Um, But Donald Trump isn't really gonna fix it. He's not, he's proposing more tax cuts for the wealthy. He's not gonna really fundamentally raise wages increase home ownership, increase, reduce student debt, you know, reduce inequality. To start with, there's a sort of interesting survey that came out as people were voting, which is 80% of voters want a strong president who will stand up to the rich and powerful. Okay, so what does that mean? in, in I think that means understanding that the drivers of these inequalities are the concentration of wealth and power and how people are using their power to rig the rules to get more wealth and power. Now, what are those rules? They're tax policies that uh, tax wages at higher levels and cut taxes on the wealthy. Uh, They're trade policies that, you know, undermine or pit workers against each other in a race to the bottom. There are government spending priorities where we subsidize global corporations and starve local communities. So down the list, there's a bunch of rules. So there's things that we can look at that will actually hit the drivers of inequality. And that's where I think Donald Trump isn't, isn't going to get there.
3: You're listening to author Chuck Collins speaking about wealth inequality in the United States. And it's an inequality that has preceded President Trump by 525 years, if we go back to the year 1492. Currently, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the top 10% of families held over two-thirds of total wealth. And the entire bottom half of the population had just 1% of the total wealth pie. We're talking wealth here, not just income. The dimensions of the racial wealth divide are even more stark.
1: You know, the, the, the median white family wealth today is 13 times more than the median black wealth. It's 10 times more than median Latino wealth. Uh, and we did a study last summer called Ever-Growing Gap, which is if we just sort of stay on the current course, uh, it will take 228 years for the uh, average black family to catch up with where the, where the average white family is today. You know, So we have these deep racial disparities that are really, you know, go back to the ultimate, you know, they go back to slavery and the dispossession of, you know, people being wealth, people not even owning themselves, to more modern manifestations of that. Um, And I think it's helpful for people just to realize, you know, after World War II, 1945 to 1960 or so, we made these huge investments in building uh, a middle class, of putting a lot of people on the wealth building train we had the GI Bill and other uh, subsidies for public higher education. Millions and millions of people benefited from that. We had these low interest mortgage programs, 40 year 1% fixed rate veterans administration farmers home loans you know FHA mortgage insurance millions of households got their first home thanks to a deep government subsidy. But those programs were highly racially discriminatory so basically we We had like what Ira Katz Nelson calls a white affirmative action. We we put a generation of white people on the express train to wealth building. And when people of color, let blacks and Latinos and First Nations people are sort of standing at the station waiting for the train that never came. So even today, you know, the white home ownership rate is seventy-one percent, the black home ownership rate is forty-one percent. That gap has persisted for decades. So <clears throat> I think, you know, the story of the racial wealth divide is a different story than the most recent chapter of inequality that's, that's affected the whole society. So it's important to sort of look at what are things we can do to sort of reduce or address that legacy of racism and wealth building. And uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of approaches, but one thing is that we just should audit every public policy idea through the lens of racial wealth disparities. Will this home ownership program actually fix it? Will it really address the racial wealth divide? Uh, Would a debt-free college loan program really work to the benefit of communities of color? I mean, we can't assume that the things that we design with sort of white people in mind will work for everybody.
3: Chuck Collins is the director of the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality and the common good, where he co-edits inequality.org. His latest book is Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good.
1: I also tell the story in Born on Third Base of, of speaking to uh, the retired men's club of Norwood, Massachusetts, 150. 150- Uh, World War II and Korean War veterans, and I, you know, here I had this amazing sample of 150 men, you know, of European heritage, and I just said, "I'm curious, how many of you all got a debt-free college education after World War II?" And three fourths of the men raised their hand. I said, "How many of you got uh, a subsidized mortgage that made it possible for you to own a home?" And you know, three fourths of them said yes. I later turned, I later learned from some of the guys that. Uh, that was a that some people didn 't raise their hand, you know <laughs> that it was overwhelming majority and I said, well how many of you think how many of your children and grand are, are any of you helping your children and grandchildren make it in today 's economy and they all laughed you know of course they are they 're like one guy says i 'm the parental down payment assistance program. I help all the progeny be able to buy their house and i said well i 'm just curious do they understand the history that you got this subsidy after World War II and that that's kind of made made it possible for them to have wealth and home ownership and they said no you know people don't know that history and I don't I don't talk about it you know and that's just another example these are not super wealthy people but it's an example of how white privilege and wealth building uh, and black and white and Latino exclusion and wealth building has contributed to this economic divide that we're in
3: Listening to excerpts from an interview with Chuck Collins. You can find links to his books and research reports at our website, radioproject.org, along with links to popular education and organizing efforts to address economic inequality. After the break, we'll share a podcast from the producers at Upstream that explores a controversial way to change income inequality. The Universal Basic Income. Stay tuned.
4: Thank you. And uh, how old are you, Michael, and where are you from?
5: 22, from Monterey Bay.
4: Wonderful. So the question we're asking everyone is if you were given $1,500 every month from now for the rest of your life, unconditionally, so no strings attached by the government, as a universal basic income for you, how would your life be different? How would it be impacted?
5: Well, I mean, honestly, I probably wouldn't be working right now if I got a universal income um, or at least working full-time that is I could focus a little bit more on school and the things that really I think would be a little bit more grounding to me Um, however because we don't have that I have to currently be working full-time in order to make ends meet so it would definitely benefit my life in the fact that I could put my energy towards so many different things than just this one uh, outlet that I have right now
4: and what do you feel about other people getting this basic income, too?
5: I feel like it's a basic human right to have a roof over your head, honestly. And people shouldn't have to worry about that month to month. So, yeah.
4: <laughs> and what's your name? Vadim. Vadim. Yeah,
5: you Vadim. Can call me Vadim.
4: Vadim. And you said you just arrived from Russia, mm-hmm. from near Moscow. Mm-hmm. And what type of work do you do in Moscow? I'm not
5: working. Ah, in Moscow. I work in my own bakery.
4: Oh, Russian bread?
5: Yep, why not?
4: <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. So the question for you is, um, if you were to get an income from the Russian government for $1,500 a month, every month, from the re- for the rest of your life, no conditions, how would your life be different?
5: I will help for people, yeah, who, who is more needed than me.
4: So you would continue to work uh, at the bakery and you would take the 1,500 a month, but you would give it to homeless people?
5: Yep. That's right. What if everybody got it?
4: What if everyone got
5: it? (laughs) It's gonna be some Uh chaos. Chaos? Yes, yes, yes.
4: It's gonna be chaos? Mm -hmm. In what way? Why would it be chaos?
5: I have some problems in English, so this guy gonna be... My translator. translator. Okay. When everyone's going to have money, uh, everyone's going to be greedy and
2: not so helpful
5: uh, to
4: each other. Okay, so you're saying that if you were given just you, 1,500, you would be generous. You would give it to other people. Mm-hmm. But if everyone was given it, you think everyone would be more greedy? Mm hmm.
5: Would you be okay just saying your first name sure. and your age?
4: Oh, oh, now uh, we've gone too far. You're such
5: a <laughs>
4: <laughs> My age? I'm yep, a lady.
1: Comfortable
4: <laughs> uh, my name's Emma and I am 32 years old. <laughs>
1: yeah. Great, and so we're out here um, in uh, Palo Alto, we're asking people what would they do if they were given $1,500 every month from the government and no strings were attached how would that change or impact your life
4: well um you say that's $1,500 you can just be generous with I guess the thing the thing about living here in the Bay Area is that everything is so much more expensive than what you were used to and I'm I'm here on a European fellowship so I get paid the same salary I did when I was working back in Europe, but everything else is insane. So it, it limits your life, it limits what you can do. You, you know, that would be a, a rent every month, you know, it frees you up to, to go out, but also just, I don't know, do other things. I'm lucky enough to enjoy my work, it just doesn't pay that well. So, yeah, it would, it would definitely t- change life a lot. Is that going to happen? Well, it might. And in some ways, it actually already is. We'll take a close look at the idea of universal basic income and ask the question, what would it mean if people received money just for being alive? Versions of this idea have been talked about for hundreds of years. Dozens of pilot studies and experiments have already taken place. And today, it's on the discussion table in many different communities. As you might imagine, this is a contentious topic. There's a lot of debate around how much it would be, who would get it, where the money would come from, and even whether it's a good idea in the first place. As we tackle these questions, we'll explore some of the deeper, bigger issues tied to this radical concept. We're here right now on Stanford University's college campus, and we're here because there's a course being taught in the philosophy department called The Philosophy of Universal Basic Income. Let's go find out more.
0: My name is Juliana Bidadanore. I am an assistant professor in philosophy at Stanford University. I'm French. I grew up in the suburbs of Paris, um, and I lived in England for about 10 years, where I did my studies in philosophy. And I moved to the US about a year and a half ago.
4: So how would you describe universal basic income?
0: Universal basic income is what has been described as a disarmingly simple policy. It consists in giving people cash on a monthly basis with no strings attached. And that may sound like a crazy idea, um, but there are very strong reasons why we would want something that ambitious.
4: Before we get into those reasons, let's take a closer look at what we mean when we talk about a universal basic income. First of all, a basic income would go to individuals, not households, as some benefits often do. It would also be an income that is unconditional, meaning there's nothing one would need to do or not do in order to receive it. That means it would be separate from and in addition to any income from paid work. You might hear unconditional and universal used interchangeably, but they actually mean very different things. Universal refers to who gets the basic income, and there's actually still a lot of debate around how universal is defined. Would it go to all legal residents or just citizens? Would minors receive it? And would it be regional, national, or even global? And lastly, another key term is the word basic, which is also under debate. What is a basic income? Is it enough to keep you from starving, or is it enough to allow you to live a comfortable life? We'll carry these questions with us throughout the episode, but first, we asked Juliana to tell us what sparked the interest in a whole course on the topic in the first place.
0: So initially the idea was that there's more and more interest within the tech community for basic income as a policy. And that's you know because there is an increased um, concern that current technological developments might lead to um, a very bleak future for jobs and that we should start worrying about what we are going to do when robots are taking over.
1: The age of robots has been anticipated since the beginning of the last century. Are the droids taking our jobs?
2: The list of companies planning to replace
6: human jobs with machines is growing.
1: 47% of jobs in America are at, or will be, at risk of automation over the next two decades. This is the single biggest job category in America. That's correct. And it could go away within the
3: next two decades. That's, that's the fear.
4: If you've already heard about Universal Basic Income, or UBI, it was likely in this context as a way to respond to job loss due to increasing automation. This is where most of the interest in UBI from Silicon Valley, where Stanford is based, comes from. Tech leaders like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, for example, have come out in favor of basic income because they claim to see it as the most sensible way of avoiding inevitable mass unemployment. Turns out this perspective is just one part of the story. Here's Juliana again.
0: The kind of automation-driven interest in basic income is really the dominant one right here, right now. And so the idea of the course was to bring computer scientists, mechanical engineers, people getting interested in basic income uh, because they are kind of realizing the social responsibility they have to bring them to see that the basic income debate can't be reduced to the automation debate, and that there are you know, many, many different arguments for basic income coming from a variety of different perspectives. And in fairness, I mean, I lived in, in Europe for a long time, for most of my life, just really recently here in the US, and I have actually been writing on basic income, reading on basic income, and automation was like a very, very small part of the puzzle. So the idea of the class was to show that, you know, there is an interesting discussion on Uh, the freedom-based argument for basic income, right? So, some libertarians, some neoliberals have argued that basic income is the instrument of freedom. It will free people to do whatever they might want to do with their time. And so, there is a debate within kind of more uh, liberal-leaning theories of justice. And then we do kind of a week on the egalitarian arguments for basic income and also the egalitarian concern that, you know, basic income might not be enough and basic income might not in itself uh, be sufficient to reduce inequalities. And so, it might even even be a, in some kind of cynical critiques, it might even be a Trojan horse of neoliberalism.
4: By a Trojan horse of neoliberalism, Juliana is referring to the questionable intentions behind the push for a basic income that comes from the right of the political spectrum, predominantly from neoliberals and libertarians. The idea behind these versions of a basic income is that we should abolish public services entirely and simply give people the cash instead so that they can purchase all their services on the market. Things like welfare programs, public housing, healthcare, and in some extreme cases, even public education spending would be cut entirely and replaced by a basic income. On the other hand, a progressive or egalitarian UBI would likely replace some services because things like unemployment benefits or food stamps may become redundant, but most public services would still remain intact. A progressive version would also be high enough to ensure that the policy would create a truly free labor market where workers could freely choose the work they want to do or even whether or not to engage in paid work at all. If the income level was not high enough to ensure this freedom, UBI might actually serve as a subsidy for employers who could get away with paying lower wages by relying on the basic income to make up the difference. As you can see, the left-wing and right-wing versions of basic income are quite different and would have radically different effects on society. Here's Juliana again
0: with the rest of the course. We also have a week where we discussed the kind of whether basic income can help uh, foster a more gender just society. Uh, We have a week on um, racial justice and basic income. Black Lives Matter has endorsed basic income as part of their manifesto. And that's, I think, uh, something that doesn't really get discussed very much. But there are very, very strong reasons to believe that basic income will benefit those who are least well off in this society. And so it might have an important impact on racial justice. And so we do almost seven weeks of that. And then we arrive at automation. And so they see that automation is actually, it's an important part of the puzzle that needs to be taken seriously and needs to be studied, but it's definitely not the entire debate. And that's really important to separate it out simply because we might want to say, well, look, we still need to resist some technological changes anyway and fight for basic income. It's not that we have to accept those changes and then support basic income. We might want to accept those changes and go for basic income, but it's not necessary. They don't necessarily work together. And I think that message is very important.
4: Confining the discussion of basic income to a debate about job automation is unnecessary and limiting. And in fact, it may actually be harmful. We met up with economist and author Doug Henwood, who weighed in about his thoughts on automation and how it connects with the idea of a universal basic income.
6: People have been talking this way about automation resulting in the end of employment for decades and decades, centuries probably, uh, and it just hasn't happened yet. But if I'm just looking at, for example, the last few years of this business cycle is that uh, if uh, automation was coming in and replacing employment, we would be seeing very rapid productivity growth, uh, and by all the conventional measures we're not. In fact, we're seeing some of the weakest productivity growth in the history of the American economy uh, over the last couple of years. And that um, is exactly the opposite of what you'd expect uh, to see if, if the robots were really taking over. Now, you know, there's the driverless car coming and all that. Who knows? Maybe it's different this time. But there's really just basically no evidence looking at all the conventional economic statistics that jobs are disappearing in that way. And I think some of that talk actually is counterproductive. I think that the notion that jobs are disappearing makes people more scared than they have to be. It makes them less likely to make demands on their boss or less likely to make demands on the political system. Moderately bad times tend to make people more conservative. They pull in and want to protect what they have. So I think making things sound worse than they are probably is not politically constructive (laughs) Uh, even though I think a lot of people say these things uh, with good intentions for example if jobs are disappearing we need a universal basic income I think we need a universal basic income even if jobs aren't disappearing so I think you should make the argument on the principle and not tell stories that may not be true
0: thanks to my mechanical engineers and computer science students, I've really realized that we have no idea what we are talking about when we are starting speculating about the future of work. And I think the plurality of futures uh, that we might have to consider in order to answer the question, would basic income help at all, is something that not, I not realize the extent to which we are struggling and the extent to which even those who are at the center of those changes so working on robots and um, the softwares of the future, don't know either. And I think what philosophers have been quite good at, political philosophers, is at saying, well, let's worry about feasibility concerns later. Let's have visions. Um, let's have utopias. Let's push them forward and then see if we can indeed um, get there. And I think that the 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 past 20 years have been wonderful in showing that actually those really big transformative radical ideas can start becoming more and more feasible when people take them seriously.
3: that's it for making contact. If you'd like to hear more about Universal Basic Income and the Upstream podcast, visit our site, radioproject.org. And what do you think? I mean, it's already difficult for a majority of society to accept the end of capitalism. But can Universal Basic Income signal real economic change? What would you do if you received extra income? Let us know. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. And Vera Teicholsker is our development associate. And I'm RJ Lozada. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.
2: the World Arts Foundation and KBOO would like to invite you to the 34th anniversary and tribute to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Entitled, We've Come This Far, Keep Alive the Dreams. On Monday, January 21st, 2019, from 11 a.m. until 6 p.m. at the Highland Christian Center, 7600 Northeast Gleason Street, there'll be a host of civic leaders, Choirs, the Jefferson Dancers, and, of course, our own Victory Village Marketplace. Again, keep alive the dream. Monday, January 21st, from 11 a.m. until 6 p.m. at the Highland Christian Center, 7600 Northeast Gleason, presented by the World Arts Foundation and broadcast live by KBOO
6: Community Radio.